Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks that we are part of that great church, that great multitude of saints, those whose uh, race is already run, those who are with you today in glory, those who have paid the ultimate price, those who have been persecuted for your name. And so, Lord, as we come now to think about some of those saints, those at the church in Smyrna, we pray that your Spirit would be present among us, that you would be pleased to say to us what you want us to hear, and Lord, that you would bless us as we think about this part of the Bible together. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was growing up, one of my very favorite things was to read and to listen to indeed some of the Just William stories. I, I don't know if you're familiar with those by, by Richmond Crompton. Um, we used to have a lot of audio cassettes in the car. Um, I know some of you are too young for cassettes and so on. And I remember you used to have the get the pen into them and wind them back up in the back seat of the car. We used to love listening to these, and it's actually the 100th anniversary this year of the very first Just William book. And if you don't know Just William, he is, as you can probably see, a very mischievous uh, sort of schoolboy. He always has various schemes going on, trying to evade teachers and his parents and so on, and the world is against him. He's always getting found out and caught, and it's just hilarious. Uh, I can't really communicate in a couple of minutes um, just how funny, at least I thought it was when I was a child. But my very favorite Just William story um, is called William's School Report. And his parents suspect that the report's going to be pretty bad, and they have a right to think that. They think it's going to be a disaster. And so they threaten him, and they say, look, if this is really bad, you're going to have to do extra classes over the summer with a private tutor. And William doesn't take too well to this. He says, in the holidays, there's laws against it. I've never heard of anyone having lessons in the holidays. Not anyone. I bet even slaves didn't have lessons in the holidays. I bet if they knew about it in Parliament, there'd be an inquest about it. Besides, I'll only get ill with overworking and get brain fever, same as they do in books. And then you'll have to pay doctor's fees, and perhaps you'll have to pay for me funeral also. I shouldn't be surprised if the judge did something about it. But William's parents are unswayed, so he has to work out a way to lose this report on the way home. But he needs it to seem like a pure accident because he knows his parents are going to see through it. An opportunity arises when on his way home, he meets his Aunt Augusta, who's coming to visit the family, and he offers to take her on a shortcut. But and how unfortunate this is, he loses his bearings, and they end up irretrievably lost in the woods. But he has a bright idea. You see, in books, when people are lost in the woods and they, and they split up to find their way out, they leave a trail behind them. And doesn't he just happen to have this envelope with something in it that he could rip up and leave as a trail to help him find his way back? And this he does. And his aunt's admiration of his bravery is so much. She can't believe that he's made this great sacrifice for him. And, and, you know, he cuts up all these phrases, you know, particularly he makes sure he gets the one that says uniformly bad. He's made no progress at all. And, you know, he, he rips all this up. And she says to him, oh, I feel for you. I remember so well the joy and pride of giving my parents my school report. Oh, you poor boy, I'm sure you know that moment well. So anyway, she picks up a small fragment of paper and it has the letters O-O on it. 
which come from the word poor. But she says, oh, this must be from good. And she picks up the words or the letters EX and she thinks, oh, well, this must be excellent when in fact it was extremely, sorry, extremely lazy and inattentive. Now her, his father sees through the trick without any difficulty, but it, it's quite funny. It's, it's a favorite of mine. But in a way, these letters from Revelation, they're a bit like, I guess, a school report because you have the great teacher, the Lord, saying how the churches are getting on encouraging words and pointing out where they can improve, issues they need to address, and warnings. But thankfully, we can read these reports a bit more easily and accurately than Aunt Augustus did of William's report. And in fact, we only have four verses tonight. Um, so what I want us to do is to, is to read through them carefully and just work out exactly what is being said here. And as we do that, um, we're actually going to pick up on some things we missed out last week as well. And I know you were here at 20 past eight last week. Don't worry, um, you're safe this week. But yes, believe it or not, we did leave out some things. But let's get stuck in. Verse, verse eight says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. One thing we didn't mention last week was the fact that the Lord actually addresses these letters, not to the churches, but to the angel of the church, to the angel of the church in wherever, Smyrna. And the word in, in Greek, angelos or, or something like that, it, it literally means messenger. So it could mean this kind of heavenly messenger, the kind of, you know, all dressed in white or however we imagine them. Or it could simply be a human messenger. But it is used later in the book of Revelation for a heavenly being. So it, it probably is a heavenly being represented by the seven stars in the Lord's right hand. But the people he's addressing in the letters are, are clearly the churches themselves. So there's a bit of contrast there. But I suppose it's a comfort for us that the church, as it faces all its trials and all its persecution, is not on its own. We don't tend to think a lot about angels and heavenly beings and, and forces and so on. But remember, the point of this letter, because it is a letter, is to encourage Christians in the face of persecution from the Romans. So the Lord addresses the angels of the church, I think, to remind the churches that they don't face this alone, that as that part of the kingdom, they actually have angels on their side. And we probably can never fully appreciate exactly what that means, but it ought to be an encouragement to us. The next thing we see in this introduction is the Lord's introduction of himself. And each time Jesus does one of these letters, all seven of them, he introduces himself in a way that's relevant to the people he's speaking to. Remember our translation there, the words of come from the, the Greek wording of the Old Testament, thus saith. It, it's a phrase that was out of use even by the time John is writing this, but he's identifying himself as the Lord, as Yahweh from the Old Testament. Last week, he introduced himself. He said, the words of the one with the seven stars in his right hand who stands among the seven lampstands. Remember, the stars are the angels, the lampstands or the lamps are the churches. And he did that last week because he was warning them, you know, if they don't return to their first love, he was going to remove their lampstand. So he introduced himself in a way that communicated the fact that yeah, he was among the lampstands. He was in a position where he could make good on his promise. 
And to the church in Smyrna, he says he is the first and the last who died and came to life again. So why does he introduce himself in this way? Well, remember the the handy guide again, the O is for Old Testament. And to understand why he introduces himself in this way, we need to look to the Old Testament. I've given you a number of verses there from Isaiah, but even if you're not looking at that, just listen and you'll hear, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. And that's just a a small selection. So Jesus is identifying himself as the Lord, all in capital letters, as the divine name behind that is Yahweh, the great I am, the first and the last. But why specifically does the church in Smyrna get to hear this introduction? Why, why does he have to be the first and the last to the people in Smyrna? Well, it's because these words immediately reveal that Jesus knows what life in Smyrna is like. You see, the two churches we've looked at so far in this series, Smyrna, Smyrna and Ephesus, they're great rivals. They both wanted to be the first city of Asia Minor. They both wanted to be the biggest, they wanted to be the best, they wanted to be the place most favored by Caesar, and they are very open about that. You see that in their writings. In fact, on the coins in Smyrna, what is on them translates simply as this, first city of Asia in size and beauty. First city of Asia. They loved to be first. They loved the word first. And Jesus is saying, Your city loves being known as the first. Well, let me tell you something about being first. Before you ever existed, I am. After you exist, I am. I am the first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega is another way of saying that. Whatever you think you are as a city, you've got nothing on me. He knows all about them. He knows that they live in a culture that likes to be self-important and first and he wants to remind them about who they are following. But Smyrna is also a place that has gone through a number of kind of death and back to life experiences. About 600 years before um, this is written, the city was completely destroyed by a fire. You've heard about the Great Fire of London, but probably not the Great Fire of Smyrna. But about 300 years after that, the people, the descendants, they came together and they rebuilt the city. It was its own resurrection, and Smyrna was very proud of this fact. But Jesus presents himself as the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Their achievements of rebuilding the city might be great, but what he has done is so much greater. So he he introduces himself in a way that says that he knows them, he knows all about them, he knows what's important in the city around them but also that reminds the people that he is the Lord of all. So what does he say to them? Verse nine, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now there's lots we could say about this verse, so let's work our way through it slowly. I know your tribulation. Some translations say affliction. 
But the word behind that has the idea of being crushed by a rock, literally between a rock and a hard place. If you're kind of stuck up against the wall and have a heavy rock pushing down on yourself, slowly crushing you, that, that's kind of the origin of that word. So can you imagine being the first hearers, being in Smyrna on a Sunday, sitting in church and hearing those words, I know the crushing pressure that you're under. I know your tribulation and I am the righteous and just God and, and I know about it. That must have been so comforting to hear him say that he knew it. But I have to say, if I'd been there, I know what I would have wanted him to say next. I would have wanted him to say, look, I know your tribulation and I'm the just God and it's really terrible that you're going through that and I'm going to lift it from you because I am going to protect you. I'm going to take it away. But he doesn't do that. Why not? Is it because the people in Smyrna are, are not doing well, that they need a little bit more tribulation? Well, no, not at all, because Smyrna's report card was very good. It was the opposite um, of William's. In these seven letters to the churches, Jesus normally will say to the church at some point, you know, you're doing this well, but then he'll turn around and say, but I hold this against you. He'll, he'll say something negative, but this doesn't happen to the Smyrnans or Smyrnaites or whatever, I don't know what the word is, but you know who I'm talking about. Jesus has nothing negative to say about them. Only this church and the sixth one, Philadelphia, don't have anything negative reported. Not a single thing. So why then are they being persecuted? And why won't the Lord take it away? Well, I think it's actually because it's the other way about. They're being persecuted because they're doing so well. They're completely sold out for Jesus. They're following him closely. They're living for him. And the culture around them doesn't like it. And Satan doesn't like it. The Bible tells us that it's going to be like this for us. Paul told Timothy, he said, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So it's maybe the opposite of what we might think. It, it's not punishment. It is true that sometimes we do experience suffering because the Lord is disciplining us in some way. The, the Lord does use hardships to correct us in, in some ways, and, and the book of Hebrews teaches us that. But it's also true that we will sometimes face hardship because we're shining bright for Jesus. Sometimes we'll face persecution because we actually desire to live a godly life. And the closer we get to Jesus, the more of this we'll face. It's actually part of what it means to be in Christ, to be in Jesus. Back in Revelation chapter 1, we didn't think about these words last week, but as John is introducing himself, this is what he says. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You see that? He's saying in Jesus you'll actually have tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance. In Jesus we will face all kinds of suffering and in him we'll find the patient endurance to get through it. Now we might not face some of the hardship that Christians in Afghanistan or India or Indonesia or North Korea or some other places will find. But if we're going to be faithful disciples where we are, we will feel this pressure because our society pressurizes us more and more and more. 
it becomes more immoral. It becomes harder to have Christian values. It's interesting that I've seen a lot of Christians on social media highlight um, what the Queen said about her faith, and she said it so openly and, and so wonderfully and so frequently, especially in her Christmas messages. But you don't hear lots of it in the mainstream media. You don't hear lots of it um, on the news because it becomes harder day by day to have Christian values here. You know, teenagers in Northern Ireland today in college, university students are, are facing this. The pressure to compromise on their beliefs, to, to compromise on things like, obvious things like sexual ethics, to compromise on their beliefs about marriage. In the classroom, there's pressure on you if you want to acknowledge the existence of God, never mind the Lordship of Jesus Christ. As parents, I know we feel the pressure to, to seek to bring up our children in a way that is more and more foreign to the world with each passing day. Professionals in, in the workplace, I know some of you want to work from kingdom principles and, and godly integrity, and you're under this pressure sometimes too. And the closer you get to Jesus, the more you will feel it. These Christians in Smyrna, they, they face this crushing pressure in ways that were both visible and invisible. The visible ways, the obvious ways, well, the Romans were persecuting them, Remember, we thought a little bit about last week about how the Romans wanted to, to require everybody to worship the emperor, to say that Caesar was Lord, but Christians, of course, wanted to hold that Jesus was Lord. But Christians also faced suspicion and oppression from some members of the Jewish community as well. You see, the Jews had quite a good setup under the Roman Empire. I mean, they didn't like the Romans. They didn't like that um, they were under Roman rule. But they had this special arrangement, which meant that they didn't have to worship the emperor. They had an exemption. Now, they paid for that. They, you know, they paid an extra tax for that. But they had this um, exemption. And the Christians tried to claim this exemption too. They tried to say, well, look, we're Jews. We, we worship the, the God of the Old Testament. We worship the God of the Jews. But we believe that Jesus has come. He's the Messiah. And so, you know, we, we are following his teachings and his way. But, but essentially, we are um, derived uh, from the Jewish religion. But a lot of the Jews didn't like that. They didn't want to be associated with Christians. Um, and, and so they went to the Romans and said, look, these guys, they're not they're not Jews at all. They're following this Jesus. They're a sect. They're a cult. You know, they're nothing to do with us. And so Christians faced this pressure, and they went through periods sometimes of um, kind of being okay with the Romans, and other times really not. And it led to poverty. We have so many writings of people being denied housing or being denied jobs or, and all kinds of things um, because of, of this problem with um, having to worship the emperor, and when they wouldn't do that, they were cast out. And that's what Jesus says to this church. He says, no, I, I know your affliction, I know your poverty. And then we have in brackets, although you are rich, or but you are rich. Jesus knows that ultimately these people have a treasure um, greater than anything anybody on the earth could see. But physically, at times, they suffered great poverty. So that, that was the visible, but they also had this invisible element. Jesus describes some of these Jews. He says they're not really Jews. They're a synagogue of Satan. And, and he says that the devil will put them into prison. Now, I want to get one thing straight as I um, have said that. 
I, I do also want to say that there's no scope in here and there's no excuse here for anti-Semitism. Um, sadly, uh, some white supremacist groups in, in the USA do this and they, they take these verses in particular and they say, look, they're, they're, the, the, these Jews, they're, they're a synagogue of Satan. Um, and, and they say all kinds of, of horrible things. I'll not go into the depths of it, but, but they try and twist this scripture and others to say, well, no, you know, we, we should persecute the Jews or whatever. But, but there, there's no scope for that here. Jesus says that these people really aren't Jews, in fact. And I think what he's getting at is a similar idea to what Paul says in Romans 2. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And again, Paul wasn't saying anything really new here. This is an idea which has its origins way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, where God says he doesn't want people who are only circumcised outwardly, but people who are circumcised in their hearts, people who truly worship him. I think the point being made here, it's not even a point about Jewish people. It's a point about people who are far from God. They're far from God. There are people in the world today who call themselves Jews whose hearts are far from God. There are people in the world today who call themselves Presbyterians whose hearts are far from God. They're not Jews or Presbyterians or whatever, um, whatever label they want to use in reality because they're not in heart. They don't accept Jesus. And Satan might well use people like that against us. The point is that there's an invisible enemy not necessarily that they're Jewish. And it just so happens that in Smyrna, the people the devil is using against the Christians were Jews. And I suppose we need to be aware that the people who persecute us are often not actually the problem themselves. But there's a spiritual enemy. It's hardly any wonder that Jesus taught us to, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, because they're not really the problem. It's the spiritual forces behind them. It's the evil one using them, which is the greatest problem. It's what Paul says in Ephesians 6. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We need to be aware of that, that our persecution is not necessarily just from people. As we seek to live for Jesus and the persecution we face will both be visible and invisible. But as we finish tonight, I, I do want to highlight from these words that Jesus gives us words of encouragement as we seek to follow him in the world which is opposed to him. And the first thing, very simply, is that he knows. He knows our struggle. And he really does know. We only need to look at his life to see that he knows what it is to be persecuted for the kingdom of God. And as we experience suffering for him, in some mysterious way, we are actually closer to him. Paul tells the Philippian believers um, in, in well-known words, he says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Sometimes we, we, we sing that together, don't we? We sing, oh, to know the power of your risen life, to know you in your sufferings, to become like you in your death, my Lord, so with you to live and never die. I wonder, do we 
think about those words as we sing them, to become like him, to participate in his suffering so that actually through that we attain the resurrection. We're closer to him. We know his life more fully often as we are persecuted. Somebody has said that it's, uh, it's the fish that are alive that swim up the river against the current, but it's the fish that have died that flow downstream with the current. So be encouraged. If you suffer, it's actually because your faith is alive and you're closer to him. The second encouraging thing is that there is purpose in all of this. Verse 10, um, in verse 10, our Lord says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. This is a test and it's a test that Jesus has a purpose in. Um, the word that Jesus uses here means not just to be tested, but actually to be proved or even improved. You see, the evil one has a purpose in all this. He wants to get at us. He wants to put us under pressure. And he wants to hurt the church and to hurt the bride of Christ. But Jesus, amazingly, also has purpose in this. He allows it to happen because sometimes periodic pressure actually refines the church. Pressure pushes us down to the essentials, to Jesus himself. And so often we come out the other side better off for it. When things get tough, sometimes just remembering that can actually be enough to help us through. The third encouragement is that this is only for 10 days. Jesus says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. We're not entirely sure what the 10 days is about. It's definitely symbolic in some way. Uh, some people think that because we have 10 fingers and 10 toes that there, there's an element of completeness to this. But the point isn't the number itself, but the fact that the days are numbered, that there is a number. The testing is only for a limited time and brighter days are ahead. Um, D.T. Niles, who was a, a missionary, I think, in, in Africa, said that although our endurance may be tested to the limit, even unto death, there is a limit to the test. So the Lord knows us in our suffering. There is a limit to the test, and there's a purpose in it. He, he is proving us and improving us through it. And then finally, Jesus gives us a couple of promises at the end of this letter. Firstly, he says, we will receive the crown of life. And then he says, we will not taste the second death. The last part of verse 10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus encourages us that this road of suffering is the road that leads to glory. Again, those words, we, to become like you in your death, my Lord, so with you to live and never die. Somebody, I, I don't know who the quote is from, but somebody has said, whoever is born only once dies twice, but whoever is born twice only dies once. Those who are born again will not be hurt by the second death, Jesus says. Now, there is a way uh, to avoid all of this, of course, to avoid um, all the suffering and the, the persecution. And that is just to not get too serious about following Jesus, just to go with the culture. It's more comfortable. The devil won't have to worry about you then. But it has to be said, there won't be any vitality in that kind of faith. But Jesus knows the pressure we're under. He knows our tribulation. 
I know your pressure, says the one who loves us. In the nature of things, he will not lift it. Sustain us in it, yes. Use it for his glory, yes. But lift it, no. For his presence is the reason the pressure comes. When I remember that, I can keep going and even do so with a strange sort of joy. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we are mindful again of the words of Jesus that in this world we will have trouble, but we should not fear because he has overcome the world. Lord, thank you that Jesus, again in his own words, did not leave us as orphans, but has left us the Holy Spirit. And so the one living in us is greater than the one who is in the world. Lord, we each come before you tonight in, from different contexts, and maybe some of us are feeling this pressure in our families, in our workplaces. Lord, we also think of those around the world who are horribly persecuted because of their faith. But thank you that you know that you are close to us in suffering and that you have promised that the one who is born twice will only die once. So Lord, give us that confidence as we go out uh, into the world to serve you and live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.